Great, brother. Excellent. Just amazed at God's faithfulness in those areas. Uh, thank you for your gospel partnership. Um, when Paul uses the word partnership he, in the gospel, what he means is, is literally a business partnership. He means like we're, we're all putting in capital together because we're part of a common endeavor. And I, that's, that's what the Lord has used to allow us to do the things that Todd just talked about. So uh, just a joy. Uh, if you would open your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Uh, and a number of weeks have gone by since we laid out our prayerful vision to see our church endure another hundred, uh, endure for 100 years into the future, and to see 100 churches planted through the ministry of the church across those 100 years. And the most common question I've gotten has been basically, uh, okay, sure, but how do we start? And I think some folks expected, maybe you did, uh, we were going to announce, okay, we're planting 100 churches, and here's our first one. It's right here, and this is what it's going to look like. And actually, the Lord has, I think, led us to approach this slightly differently. We're going to spend the next year specifically trying to train as many leaders across all the areas of the church as possible. Uh, and so we're, we're hoping to train. And what that means is basically... If we're going to be a multiplying church, if we're going to be a church that is generous with its leaders and sends out people for the work of gospel ministry, that means we don't need one, you know, Sunday hospitality team lead. We need two. We don't just need, five, you know, 10 community group leaders. We need 20 so that some can go. We, we don't just need uh, the number of pastors we need. We need extra. We don't need uh, just one or two gifted female Bible teachers uh, to lead women. We need more than that. And so what we want to do is encourage this year uh, investing across all the areas of the church into raising up leaders, and we'll be doing, uh, God willing, a leadership summit with an outside speaker in March. And so we're just going to be emphasizing that throughout the year. And in God's providence, as we go through 1 Corinthians 1 through 4, 1 Corinthians 1 through 4, this opening section is a clinic in many ways in how to think about Christian leadership. And the reality is you might think, well, I'm not a leader. Yes, you are. I'm not an influencer. Yes, you are. Meaning you, you lead and influence the people around you. Uh, you have an undeniable effect on your home life, on your marriage, on your friendships, on your office, on your small group, on your discipleship group, on this church. Everyone in this room is leading somewhere. And so 1 Corinthians 1 through 4 will help us lead in the mold of the gospel. Uh, so rather than, we're going to be actually rereading several sections in 1 Corinthians. Uh, but before we do that, I want to want you to, I want to read where we're going to land so you can see where Paul is going, that where we start in just a second would, would make it all the more rich and meaningful. And so Paul, uh, this, this may be familiar to you, Paul gives something of a gospel manifesto for Christian leadership in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, and we will begin there. This is God's word. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is God's word. Lord, I pray that you would help us. 
Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. May we be remade today more in the pattern of your pattern for Christian leadership. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the most defining books of my life has been the short book by D.A. Carson called The Cross and Christian Ministry. And I think it should be required reading if you're in Christian ministry in in any respect. Uh, But the book opens with a surprising analogy that I want to give to you here. What if you saw somebody walk in to your office or your workplace and you noticed their earrings were little recreations of the mushroom clouds over Hiroshima? Or what if you went to visit somebody for dinner and over their fireplace there was this beautiful oil painting of the mass graves at Auschwitz? Or what if you saw someone in the coffee shop and, and they had their, their, their coffee there and they're by the window and they have a nice leather book in front of them and then on the front of that leather book was a guillotine. It would be strange, wouldn't it? It would be shocking. It would be, you'd probably say that's in very poor taste. It's very, you know, bizarre. You'd probably want to exit that dinner, you know, with your friend as quickly as possible. You'd probably not want to talk to that person at the coffee shop. You'd want to avoid that person with the uh, Hiroshima earrings. And yet, Carson points out, that is what the cross was for the Roman world. Now, we've been desensitized to this because especially in El Paso, we have crosses everywhere. I'm just driving in this morning, seeing the, 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 the shape of the cross on Mount Cristo Rey. Uh, you see it at the top of the, the old Union Station Depot downtown. They're all over in crosses. People have them on jewelry. People have them on tattoos. So we're just kind of used to the crosses being, oh yeah, it's just part of, part of life here in the world. And yet we miss how shocking it was for Paul to speak so much and so often and emphasize so much the cross of Jesus Christ. Uh, or the orator, Cicero, Maybe you got some Cicero fans in here. I'm just kidding. There are no Cicero fans. The Roman order Cicero said this. He was famous, and this is what he said. The very word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. Meaning that the cross was so humiliating, it was so bizarre to watch people. That this was, you couldn't be executed on the cross if you were a Roman citizen. Even the worst Roman citizen, you go on to mass murder people, you're still not going to go to the cross. The cross was reserved for the refuse of the refuse of the Roman world as people bled and died and suffocated in public. That's what the cross was to, to the Roman public and to Corinth in particular. And yet Paul begins the letter with this statement, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And at the end of the letter, he ends with 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance that Christ died, that he was buried, and that he rose again. Meaning the cross bookends the book of 1 Corinthians, the the first, first letter to the Corinthians. So why? Why does Paul seem obsessed with this strange, bizarre, distasteful object in Roman culture? And the key question is, why does Paul build the church around the seeming weakness and offense of the cross. Why does he do that? And I think that's a question for each of us today as well because we, like every generation, we face the same temptation the Corinthians do here to to shift our attention from building our lives, building our churches, building our families, building our relationships around something else that is not as strange, as bizarre, as offensive as the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, 
We're going to begin back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, in the, the, the title, Divisions in the Church, because uh, Paul launches into this kind of excursus on the cross of Jesus Christ for a particular reason. Now, I'll talk to some medical professionals about the, the concept of the presenting problem, or even, you know, people who are psychologists or therapists. They, somebody comes in with a presenting problem, that, that they come in saying, I have a headache, but often the presenting problem is not the real problem. Well, do you have a headache? I mean, it's real different if you've got a headache from dehydration, you need to drink more water, or you've got a headache because you've got some kind of tumor growing in your head. Or if you've got a headache because you're just stressed out, right? Those are all very different. So the, the wise medical professional tries to discern what is behind this, not what is the problem on the surface, but what's the problem underneath the problem. And so Paul identifies first the problem on the surface in verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, who is Peter, or I follow Christ. So this is the problem that Paul sees, the presenting problem. This church is full of rivalry and division. They, they had each taken a leader in the early church and built a following around that person and argued endlessly over which of those followings was better. Now, I don't think anybody came in today with an I follow Apollos shirt, but if you did, you should feel real bad right now. I mean, shame on you. No, I don't think anyone has done that, but we all face this temptation to think of ourselves, compare ourselves to one another, and to, to gravitate to a tribe or a person or a speaker or a leader that we, we sort of find our strength and power by associating with those things, those peoples, those groups. Meaning, uh, you, you might say, I'm, I, I follow Paul or I follow Paulus or I follow Peter, but you could say, well, listen, I'm better than the other Christians I know because I'm reformed. I'm a reformed Christian, unlike those people out there. Or I'm a charismatic Christian. I care about relationship with the Spirit. Or you might think, well, I'm, I'm conservative, and people should, should respect me for that. No, I'm even more than conservative. I'm libertarian. And somebody's like, no, I'm not even libertarian. I'm an anarchist. I hope you're not an anarchist. But we do this over all these different areas of life. You say, I'm a homeschooler, so I'm better than these people. I'm a classical homeschooler, so I'm better than regular homeschoolers. I'm a proud public schooler, so I'm better than those people. Or I follow this leader, this politician, this author, this preacher, this YouTuber, this thinker. Right? This person. Well, have you, this people are always talking about, well, have you read so-and-so? And they're like, oh. You're like, no, I've never heard of, oh. You know, I thought so. You know, they just, we, we face the same temptation. But Paul knows that that problem, he could just say, well, stop it. Stop it. But he knows the problem is deeper than they think it is. First, he corrects them with a simple verse 13. Look, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Meaning, you, you, there shouldn't be division. You should all be defined by being in Christ, which he's going to unpack throughout the letter. But verse 14, he continues, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did, also, did baptize also the household of Stephanus. And beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize 
but to preach the gospel. And not, and this is the key, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. So what he's saying is this to the Corinthians. He's saying, when you do this, when you think this way, when you begin to say, well, I'm powerful, I'm strong because of my association with the powerful and the strong, you are emptying the cross of Christ of its power. These two things are not compatible. You can't both believe in the cross of Jesus Christ and cling to the kind of the worldly definitions of power and strength around you. They are not compatible. You can't hold them together. It's one or the other. And to hold the world's definitions means to empty the cross of its power. And he goes to work on them in three sections to drive home his point. The first is he reminds them of the weakness of the message of the gospel. First, a weak message. Verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. And then this stinging list of rhetorical questions. Where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of his age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but, but we, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What, what Paul is doing here is he's using these, this list of stinging rhetorical questions to drive home the fact that none of these so-called powerful, strong groups opened the way to salvation or restored them in the sight of God. He talks about the wise man, meaning the person who, who has this whole philosophical system lined up, who, who has an answer. Have you ever run across these people online? They have an answer for everything. Oh, just follow my method of whatever, of eating and working out and this and life and finances. Just follow all of that and then you'll be great and powerful and rich and attractive like me. Paul says, okay, yeah, great. Did any of them save you? Did any of them go to the cross for you? Did any of them open the way to God? I thought not. Or he said, where is the scribe or the scholar? Referring to the, the Jewish scholarship of, of knowing these deep religious truths, of, of knowing uh, all these ancient texts, of being a person of great learning. Did, did any of them, Paul is asking, did any of them save the world? Did any of them redeem you? I thought not. Or even the debater. Right, the powerful person. Now in Corinth, if you, if you look at a city diagram of Corinth, there was an amphitheater and an uh, agora, a, a marketplace. And often there would be, it, it was almost like a sporting event to come and hear the latest orator or debater, right? The way that some people get fired up, you know who you are, for like WWF, right? 
They were just like, oh my gosh, did you see the rock? He came back this week. He made it up. You know, your people are like, yeah, the fireworks are going off. That was debate and oratory skill in Corinth. Now, they also had the Olympics, but it had varied interests, okay? Right, but it was these, it was, they would draw a crowd. And they would use these, no, listen, man, there's no movies, okay? There's no Marvel. There's none of that stuff. And so the most exciting stuff was sports and oratory. And that's just what they had. And so Paul, Paul is saying, listen, all of you guys that have your favorite speakers and preachers and team, yeah, yeah, our guy's going to debate the other guy and we're going to win. He goes, okay, great. Okay, great. Any of those people save you? Did any of those people solve the fundamental problems of humanity? No, they just gave another speech. So all these things, all this, this power, this strength that you're, you're pining after and going after, it comes in the end to nothing. And in fact, true power and true strength in the gospel of Jesus Christ destroy and confound the wisdom of the world. It, look, this is, this is so important. It, it is not as though the gospel takes the categories of power and strength in the world and just fulfills them better than the world can. It is that the gospel destroys the way of thinking the world has. It utterly destroys it. Now, you might think, okay, well, I'm very glad I'm not a big fan of rhetoric, otherwise I'd feel real convicted this morning, but thankfully, I feel safe. Well, what some of our own versions of this be, right? Are those things that, that we, you think about it this way, we use as the measuring sticks of life. We say, listen, here's the, the measuring stick I'm using of power and strength, and, and, and I measure up and you don't, so I'm better than you. Or my guy, my favorite guy, my favorite tribe, they measure up and yours doesn't, so I'm better than you. This is what the Corinthians are doing. What are those measuring sticks we use? Maybe it's coolness, right? We, we value, we're a culture obsessed with, with aesthetics and vibes and feelings. We, we listen to celebrities and, and Instagram stars who have carefully produced content. We, we tend to, the American church tends to gravitate to attractive pastors with cool bands and nice lighting. So all of you are safe here. I mean, I think a band is relatively cool, but... Not so much the rest, right? We, we, we gravitate to coolness. We gravitate to novelty. We have a bias toward anything new. Newer is better. New books must be better. The wisdom of youth must prevail. We gravitate toward success, monetary success, financial success, education for success, right? The first person in their, their family to get a college degree. The first person to get a master's degree. The first person to get a PhD, or the, the person to make this amount of money. The person to move into this income grant. The person to take this kind of vacation, we, we, we value, in a strange way, and just like the Corinthians, anyone who's great at controversy, who tells it like it is, who tears and tears down their opponents the best. And we're like, yes! And you're like, I don't do that. I see what you post, right? I, I've seen it. Anyone who is great at self-expression, who purports to share their true self, their authentic self, right? Self-authenticity is a currency, the most authentic person must be 
right. And look, some of this isn't necessarily bad, but when these are our measuring sticks, okay, who's the most authentic? Who's the most successful financially? Who's the most attractive? Who's the guy, the, the, their finger on the pulse of American youth culture? But when those become our measuring sticks and either we compare ourselves favorably there or we associate ourselves with somebody, we're like, okay, I'm part of this tribe and we're good at this. When we do that, Paul says, we are just using the world's definitions of power and strength. And you know what the cross of Jesus Christ does to those measuring sticks? It takes them in hand and snaps them and says worthless. Because the cross is what is truly powerful. The cross is where true strength is found. Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified. And Carson points out that, that, that even that term, Christ crucified, meaning that the King Messiah crucified is a juxtaposition in terms like, like uh, what does he say? He has a great language. Oh, like frozen steam or hateful love or upward decline. Right? It wouldn't make any sense. How can you be a king and crucified? It doesn't make any sense. But that's what Paul says. We preach Christ crucified. To those who are called it is this, when you see the cross, to those who have been saved, redeemed, transformed, justified, for those people, you see that Christ and the cross are the power of God more than all worthy power, are the wisdom of God more than all earthly wisdom. D.A. Carson says this, where human wisdom utterly fails to deal with human need, God himself has taken action. We are impotent when it comes to dealing with our own sin and being reconciled to God. But where we are impotent, God is powerful. Human folly and human wisdom are uh, equally unable to achieve what God has accomplished in the cross. Now, this line is just great. The gospel is not simply good advice, nor is it good news about God's power. The gospel is God's power power to those who believe. The place where God has supremely destroyed all arrogance, human arrogance and pretension is the cross. So Paul says it is not until you snap those worldly measuring sticks that you begin to see the power of the cross, right? The, the, pow- the cross, this king hanging, bleeding, crucified on the cross, that is what has the power to save. That is what has the power to give life. That is what has the power to redeem. That is what has the power to restore you to your relationship with your eternal father. And it is the wisdom of God. For all the books humanity has written, for all of the, the, the posts that have been written since the advent of social media, none of them have been able to do what the wisdom of the cross has done. The plan of God worked out from eternity past, weaving in the most unexpected ways together the salvation of humanity and God's people, blows every other plan, every other kind of definition of wisdom out of the water. So my question is this, what, what, what are the earthly measuring sticks you value most in life? What is wisdom to you? What is power to you? What do you, you get out and say, well, at least I'm doing better than them, right? Or at least I'm associated with this tribe. And this tribe is more just and right and smart and whatever, democratic than, than the other people. And so therefore... 
I'm doing better than those other people. And Paul says, no, you, you, they're not compatible. You can't be using that and then trying to fit the cross into the world's versions of power and wisdom. You must destroy the world's versions of power and wisdom and receive then the gospel of Jesus Christ. Second, a weak Christian. It's a weak message. Paul turns the tables from the ruler that he snaps to the mirror. He says, look in the mirror, brothers, verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to earthly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And what Paul does then is he, he says, okay, listen, I don't think you've, you're convinced yet. I want you to turn from the gospel message itself and look in the mirror. Have you ever had this experience where uh, I was at a hotel like last year or I think it was last year at some point, that has like the lights around the mirror that are like, like you can see every like pore of your face. And so I, Jen says that they're great for you, like doing makeup with. But I just remember waking up in the morning looking raggedy. It was a long day of travel and I turned on the light and I saw my face and I went, ah! <laughs> and I thought, that guy looks old. Like what, what is happening to me? I thought I had more hair than that, you know, like, but it's that, that particular mirror, right, that all of a sudden, like, shows you as you are. And sometimes when, you know, the, 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 if you take a shower, the, the mirror is steaming, you just kind of see the outline of your head, and you're like, hey, I bet he looks pretty good, right? But then you clear it off, like, whoa, okay. Paul is doing that for the Corinthians. He's saying, listen, you, you are looking at yourself in the mirror and you're like, hey, that guy's pretty good. That girl's pretty good. She's pretty strong. She's pretty powerful. She's, she's doing pretty well according to the world's standards. And he takes that towel and he goes, and he wipes it down so you can see what's there and says, look at that. And, and, and the, the reality is, the honest truth is this, not many of you were powerful before coming to Christ. Right? Not, not many of you were noble. Not many of you were, were people that the world considered, oh, yes, the best of the best. And, and he points that out for a reason. He wants them to see when the gospel came to them, it did not come to them because they were powerful enough to attract God's attention. The gospel did not come to them because they were strong enough to attract God's attention. D.A. Carson says this, not only has he shamed and nullified the world by choosing so many people whom the world does not highly esteem, God has taken this step to shatter human boasting. God acts to redeem fallen men and women because he is gracious and for no other reason. He does not owe anyone in the world forgiveness and eternal life. If he gave out these wonderful gifts on the basis of a formula worked out by the immigration departments of many countries, meaning the more education, skill, sophistication, or wealth you have, the easier it is to get in, then many of those who come to know God by faith in Jesus Christ would have a legitimate ground for boasting. But God takes action 
so that no one may boast before him. Meaning this, nobody based on that portrait in the mirror receives entry into the kingdom of God. It is not their accumulation of wealth, attractiveness, uh, power, income, education that gives them a leg up in the admissions process to the kingdom of God. Paul says, remember yourself. You were low even by the standards of the world and yet God chose you. Now this is both profoundly humbling and profoundly encouraging. It's profoundly humbling first before it can be encouraging. And it's profoundly humbling because... Often, we compare ourselves to one another favorably, don't we? And we kind of, or we, so we either compare ourselves favorably to people that we see are lower than us in power and strength, or we despair when we see the people higher than us who have power and strength. And we think, okay, well, listen, maybe if I work hard enough, I can merit enough, I can do enough, then I can get up there too. And Paul is saying, no, stop it. When you in the church are saying, well, I'm, I have a leg up on this crowd. I got a leg up on that crowd. Stop it. Because none of you entered the kingdom of God. None of you were saved as a result of your power and strength. In fact, God intentionally chose weakness. He chose weak people. He chose messed up people. I talked to somebody after the end of the first service and they said, listen, I was hopeless before Jesus. And so often I just forget it. Right, we, we just think, okay, well, I'm, I'm doing okay now. What were you before Christ? Hopeless, helpless, unable to merit his attention. And when you remember that, it brings a profound humility that permeates the culture of your family, your marriage, your relationships, and your church. Look, I... I have been there. I remember early on in ministry, there was, a, there was a brother I was having a theological dispute with and, and I remember thinking, I remember having this thought, well, that guy thinks he's right, but he does not have a 3.98 GPA like me. That's right. That's right. You know, or, I mean, he had, and then I, remember, I thought to myself, he hasn't even read as many theological books as I have. I'm going to ask him, I'm going to ask him about this books next time I see him. I'll be like, oh, have you read this? You know? And in that, that moment, I, I think like so many of us, y you see my heart exposed where I'm, I'm going, okay, well, I'm better than you. And I have a ground to stand on to look down on you because I have power and strength according to the world's standards. And yet, did my GPA get me to God? Did those list of theological books I read gain be entrance into the kingdom of God? No, only the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross did. So it is with all of us. There is no varsity and junior varsity seating sections in the church. It is not those who have merited it and those who are trying to merit it. It is only those who have received the grace of Jesus Christ. But if you let that be profoundly humbling, it is also profoundly encouraging. Because Paul says, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us from God righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He says in verse 27, God chose you. He chose you despite your weakness. It's not as though he could not see your weakness. And after he kind of determined and launched the plan of salvation to save you, he got you and went, oh, no. That's not, I did not realize that was under there, right? Right? 
Like, I'm going to save her. And he's drawing you to himself. And as you're being drawn to himself, he begins to go, oh, well, I already did commit to save her. But otherwise, he doesn't do it. He sees you in your absolute worst, in your weakness. He sees you as bankrupt, even according to the world's definitions of power and strength. He sees you as bankrupt in the court of heaven. He sees your sin. He sees me and my 3.98 GPA self-righteousness. Which, by the way, the point two is because even though my name is Jose Ricardo Alcantar, I got a B in Spanish that semester. <laughs> which is pathetic. Right? It, it's, he sees all of these things. He sees through us. He sees into the holes in our resume. He sees into the holes in our biography. He sees the worst of us. And yet he still chose us because of his grace. Not because of anything we did. Not because of anything he merited. Grace. Right? And when, when that happens, when we, when we receive that as a church, man, it builds a culture that is unlike anything else in the world. Everything else in the world is I'm here, you're here, you're here, I'm here, I'm here, you're here, you're here, I'm here. In the church, it's we're all here, level, ground is level, down here at the foot of the cross. That's it, man. All right, third section, a weak minister. Now, Paul finally turns his attention to remind the Corinthians of how he ministered to them when he came to Corinth. Now, before we read this, I want you to remember that Paul the apostle has by all stretches of the imagination, an actually impressive biography. When he's like, not many of you were noble, he is. He's a Roman citizen, even though he's a Jew. We don't even know how he got that citizenship. Probably through his family being wealthy or something like that. He studied with the foremost Old Testament scholar, Gamaliel. He studied with the most zealous and strict sect of his religion in the Pharisees. He traveled the world. He was cosmopolitan. He knew how to quote the, 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 the Mediterranean poets to people. Like he quotes the Cretans, one of their own poets in one of his letters. When he goes and speaks in one of the, the cities in Acts, they assume he is the god Hermes and begin to try to worship him. Right? And so... Here's the reality. In Corinth, he lands in Corinth and immediately observes their culture. He immediately observes they're defined by, oh, I'm following this teacher right now. I'm following this orator right now. I'm following this philosopher right now. Everybody has their favorite. They all have their team t-shirt. They're all walking around. And Paul knows he can set up shop and he can go like this. Hey, everybody, see this one I'm standing on? This is who I studied with. These are the poets I can quote. This is my Roman citizenship. Listen to me and draw a crowd to himself. He could easily do that. And yet, you know what he does? Read again. Chapter 2, verse 1. And when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided, this is a conscious decision, decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. 
Look, what Paul does, he does the unexpected when he arrives in Corinth. In fact, the way that a lot of people like him were supported in Corinth is they went and they accumulated followers and the followers would start paying them a monthly, like basically like a subscription to their favorite orator or speaker to be part of their tribe. And so Paul could stand up here and start lecturing and people start bringing him money. He starts signing people up and he's, he lived pretty comfortably. But he goes in and he sees that culture and he says, no, 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 I'm gonna make tents. I'm gonna refuse to take any money from these people. And in fact, I could preach up here I'm going to preach down here. I could do these great flights of oratory like at the end of Romans 11. These poems that I can do spontaneously. Not going to do that. Plain preaching of the gospel. He does the opposite of what they expect. And he says, do you remember that? That's how you were planted as a church. It wasn't me standing on my own merits. It was me humbling myself so that nothing would obscure the cross of Jesus Christ and its message for you. Look, man, I've heard it said, what, what you win them with is what you win them to. And I think that's true in much of church ministry. If you win people with coolness and aesthetics, that is what they will expect and demand. If you win people with sophistication and smarts, that is what they will demand. If you win them with humor and authenticity, that is what they will demand. But Paul comes to Corinth and determines to win them with nothing but the message of the cross. And look, the reality is, like, I've seen so many movements come and go, even in the last 15, 20 years among the church, right? I, like, pastors trying to be relatable by, by wearing, you know, jeans. I remember what a big thing it was. Like, jeans. What's the church coming to? And other people are like, finally, we're reaching the young people with jeans, you know? And right, you have these movements. And then went to ripped jeans. And now guys are dressing back up again. And they're looking dapper. And, Sunday, you know, and then... You, you've gone from like, okay, everything being lights and smoke and like lasers. And now there's this big movement in aesthetics that like, no, no, no. You don't want any of that stuff. You want to find like a super old church and fix it up. And that's what's cool now. Listen, I don't know what's going to be cool next year or the year after, or the decade after that, or 100 years from now. I don't know. But I do know this. If we build our church around stuff like that, it will fade. It will pass away. And it's nothing more than using the world's measuring sticks and us as the church trying to come and say, we can do that too. Let's not play that game. Paul says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified so that their faith would not rest in the wisdom of then men, but in the power of God. Paul does not want at the end of his sermon, at the end of their Sunday service in Corinth, for anybody to be thinking or saying out loud, what a speaker, what an orator, what a philosopher, what a scholar. He wants the only thing coming out of the mouth of the church at the end of the service to be what Ah, Savior. Jesus Christ and him crucified. So as we minister to those in our lives, let's emulate the Apostle Paul. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't have lights. I mean, we have some lights, right? Jen makes sure I wear like a presentable shirt on Sundays. This is, you know, these are good things. But, but as we minister to those in our families, those in our groups, those in, in our church, those in our city, let, let us do everything we can to keep at the forefront of what we do, removing anything that would be a barrier to people seeing the cross of Jesus Christ. And let us not play cultural games. Let us put aside the, the, the kind of the boxes of merit that we're tempted to stand on and lower ourselves that people may see the cross of Jesus Christ. All right, let me, let me end with this.
Why does Paul cling to the weakness of the cross? Because the weakness of the cross is true power. The true power for your ministry, for your life, for your Christian life, for your family, for your group, the true power is the cross of Jesus Christ. And that power is good news for those who find themselves weak. Look, the gospel is not actually good news for people who are proud. (laughs) If you're proud, you don't need the cross and you don't understand it. But if you, like Paul, say, man, I'm, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm someone who needs God desperately. The cross is the best news imaginable. And that's what Paul is returning them to here. Okay, one last quote from Carson, then I'll shut up with Carson. This is my promo for the book. The whole sermon is just, I promise DA hasn't paid me at all. Don hasn't paid me at all for this. But this, this is a great way to end. He says this. These people are saved by him, not because he chooses those who boast some superior trait or insight, not because he loves people who judge themselves to be wise, but because God has determined to rescue those who believe in him. By his grace, they trust him. They rely on him. They abandon themselves to him. He is their center, their rock, their hope, their anchor, their confidence. And thus God quietly and effectively banishes the wisdom of our culture as utter folly. Thus the message of the cross divides the human race absolutely It is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Would you stand and let's pray. And as you stand, I just want to encourage you to take a moment. There are three images, if you could say it that way, in the the passage today. The first is that image of the measuring rod, the, the worldly measuring rod to see how we're doing stacked up against others. And I think one of the first messages of this, before this is good news, it's hard news. It's hard news because we've got to snap that measuring rod. We've got to allow the cross to snap in half that measuring rod that we have. That we pine after coolness or success or authenticity or, or income or education, whatever those things are. So just take a moment right now before the Lord and say, Lord, help me to see. Is there anything in my life I'm using to, to pine after power and strength from the world's definitions? And Lord, help me. Help me to refocus and see that that's not what I should be pursuing or thinking. And then that second image in the text is that image of looking in the mirror. And as I said, it is profoundly humbling, but it is also profoundly encouraging. If you're willing to see the difficult truth of the gospel, that you are really weak, the gospel becomes the best news in the world. So let's pray together for that. Lord, we pray that we as a church would be a church that's, that live up to our name as Cross of Grace. Lord, that we would, we would not look to the world's definitions of strength and power as we build our families and businesses and lives and church, but instead, and cling to the cross because the cross is the greatest news imaginable for those of us who believe. When our our standing in the world did not save us, the standing of your son did. When our relational skill didn't save us, 
your relationship, our relationship with the Son did. When our futile efforts to gain identity and notoriety and win praise failed us, we find your smiling face in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Lord, I pray that as we sing, you'd remind us of the joy of our salvation yet again. Amen.